Our reading today is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, <clears throat> built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So ends our reading. You know, for all of our modern mobility and global connectivity, I think we often feel an acute sense of loneliness and isolation as a culture. We're at once aware of everything and part of nothing. And since it's that time of year, I might as well mention the graduation speeches <laughs> that have been and will continue to wax eloquent on the limitless possibilities that lie before us. I, I think I've lost count of the number of times I've, I've driven by Midlothian High School which I love, and I've seen that little sign up front and been reminded to reach for the stars. And yet, I think the sheer number of, of options before us and the encouragement to go wherever you want to go and become whatever you want to become isn't comforting. I think it's frightening. You be you, ever heard that? feels like freedom, but it's ultimately disillusioning because it sets us up for an identity crisis where we have no clue who we really are or what we're supposed to be doing with our life, right? So on the one hand, we, we love the freedom of individual choice. 
But on the other hand, we, we can't shake this hunger for a, a tethered sense of place and belonging. We hunger for that. We want to be part of something greater than ourselves. And I might as well point out that the advertising industry is on to that in you. They know that. If you, if you pull up the website for Recreational Equipment Incorporated, or REI, and you navigate to their customer loyalty program, you won't find an invitation to give them more money and be a frequent shopper. You know what you'll be invited to do? Become a member. And the bold print at the top of the page says it all. Can you believe this? What's the top of that page say? It's good to belong. Not, we want your money (laughs) or buy more of our stuff. It's good to belong. And then there's a picture of four women on top of a mountain summit. Don't, don't navigate there right now. I see those smartphones. Looking out over an overlook, evidently belonging because they all joined REI. You can kind of laugh at that, but, but again, those advertising people, they know something about us. That we, that we don't always realize about ourselves. And that's that a sense of community is one of our deepest felt needs as human beings. And all kinds of groups claim to offer that in different ways. So what do you think makes the church any different? Any different. I mean, all, all kinds of groups around you offer a sense of belonging. They provide that. They offer relationships. They offer connections with like-minded people and a, a purpose greater than us to occupy our evenings and weekends. If you read the rest of the page at REI, you'll find all those things if you too become a member. And I think that, at least I'll give us the benefit of the doubt, I think many Christians would say, well, the church is different, but if pressed I'm not sure we could say why. Why is it different? We couldn't say what sets the community of the church apart from every other organization on the planet. And that is the issue, friends, that we are going to tackle head on for the next four weeks. So a little later this summer, we're going to get into a longer series in 1 Thessalonians, then we'll go to the Gospel of John. But I want to take the next four weeks to focus on the community of the church, and in particular, why it's a community like no other. So we're going to look at our identity, a week on each of these. We're going to look at our identity, we're going to look at our mission, at our authority, and our character as a church. This morning, we're going to focus on our identity. And this is the question I want you to keep in your mind right now. What is it about the community of the church that's any different than every other organization on the planet. That as you leave today, like REI is going to say, join me and get belonging. Pay dues to me and find connection. You want a sense of place, a purpose bigger than yourself? Come to me. What what makes the local church any different than all of those voices? Well, Paul, the apostle, hits that question head on in this section of Ephesians 2. He tells us that true community or authentic community or 
real community, pick your word there, the kind of community God made us to enjoy. Friend, it's not something that we create for ourselves. Please hear that. True community isn't something that human beings can create for themselves. True community is something God creates for us in the church through the person and work of Christ. You want belonging? You want place? So does practically every other person on this planet. But you can't create that for yourself. No other human being can create that for you. True community is something God creates for us in the church through the person and work of Christ. You won't get it on a mountaintop, though I love mountaintops. You won't find it by joining a private gym. You won't find it on social media or a club at school, or a senior group at the community center. All of those are good things. They can be good things, but they're all communities we create for ourselves. What's different about the church? The church is a community that God creates for us by reconciling us to himself and uniting us to one another in Christ. That's what makes the church different. It's not built on the whims and thoughts and musings of man. Hey, that'd be cool. Let's do a member thing for outdoor people. No. It's built on the eternal purposes of God. And this is a rich passage of scripture that I was overwhelmed by over and over again this week. I told my wife, Eliza, yesterday, I feel like I'm hacking through the weeds here because there's just so much. I'm not going to try to address every point or answer every question you may have had as this was being read. I'm simply going to, this morning, try to help us understand two connections between what Jesus has done and the community we have in the church as a result. Okay, that's the simple goal. I like simple, clear goals. What's the connection between who Jesus is, what he's done, and the community we have in the church as a result? I'm going to end all that with a practical call to live out our identity in Christ. So, connection number one, those who are far off are brought near in Christ. What's the connection between the personal work of Jesus, the community of the church? Here's the first one. Those who are far off are brought near in Christ. I'm focusing here on verses 11 to 13. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul urges the Christians in Ephesus to remember their past. He's going historical with them. He's just finished reminding them why everything God has done for them is a gift of grace, verses 1 to 10, an expression of his undeserved favor. And now he wants them to remember and not forget something, who they were before God intervened in their life. And so he says, remember, Ephesians, that you were, verse 11, once Gentiles in the flesh. Okay, when first century Judaism, a little bit of background here, there were two groups in the world, Jews and Gentiles. Okay, the Jews were God's chosen people. They, they were the objects of God's particular favor and blessing. And from the beginning of the Jewish nation, God, God made it clear that his redemptive purposes would eventually spread, think Genesis 12, to all the nations of the earth. But they didn't start there. They didn't start with every tribe and tongue. They began with the children of Israel, the Jews. And the Jews identified themselves as God's people through circumcision, a physical act intended to reflect a consecration of heart to the Lord and his purposes. And everyone else was a Gentile, or more derogatively, 
the uncircumcision. So, so why would Paul remind the Ephesian Christians of their status as Gentiles? Why bring up the age-old ethnic distinction? Well, the answer, friend, is that it wasn't just an ethnic distinction. It was an ethnic distinction with profound spiritual consequences. That's why he brings it up. To, to be a Gentile, look at verse 12, was to be separated from Christ. Now, Paul isn't speaking here primarily of, of who they were before they had faith in Jesus or trusted in Jesus. He's referring to the fact that the promised Messiah, the one who would deliver God's people from sin and death, was sent first to the Jews, right? Not to the Gentiles. As Jesus himself said in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. So they were separated from the Messiah. Gentiles were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. If you wanted to experience the blessing of God, the favor of God, you had to become a Jew. You couldn't remain a Gentile. And as a result, they were also strangers to the covenants of promise. What's up with that? Well, throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship with his chosen people was, was defined and carried along on the backs of oath-bound promises or covenants, covenants that, that told the Israelites exactly what sort of favor and blessing they could expect from God and what God required from them in response. And as Gentiles, the Ephesians had none of that, no guarantee of relationship with the Lord. Now, at this point, you may be wondering all right, pastor, why is all that a big deal? <laughs> I mean, doesn't God love everyone? I, I suppose it would have been nice to be a Jew, but, but seriously, was it, was it really that bad to be a Gentile? I mean, who would want all those rules? Can I go with the Gentile? Well, look at what Paul says next, verse 12. He just keeps piling on who they were. Verse 12, they had no Think about that. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever hit a point in your life, maybe you're there right now, where you felt absolutely hopeless? Well, for the Gentiles, it wasn't a passing feeling. It was a spiritual reality. No hope. Why do I say that? Because in the Bible, hope isn't about the size of your retirement account or an opportunity for promotion at work or, or a vacation around the corner next month. Hope rises and falls on the tide of a single issue in the word of God. Namely, are you right with God or not? What, what comes into God's mind, he could say it this way, when he thinks about you is the most important thing about you. Because it's what ultimately determines whether you have hope, whether you can anticipate an eternity of joy with the Lord in heaven or an eternity of judgment away from the presence of the Lord in hell. And to be separated from God's Messiah, separated from God's people, separated from God's saving promises was to face a future of guaranteed spiritual death. 
was the definition of, of hopelessness. And to make matters even worse, during your life in this world, look back at verse 12, Gentiles weren't just without hope, they were without God. Do you, do you realize God isn't with everyone? We hear that all the time. You won't find that in the Bible. He's present everywhere, but he's not with everyone. His presence to comfort, sustain, deliver, and guide, that, that's exclusively reserved for his people and only his people. And that means there's, there's no greater joy in this world, right, than the joy of knowing God is with you. No greater joy. And there's no greater sorrow in this world than the sorrow of knowing that God is not with you. For a Gentile, no hope without God. Far from God, far from God's people. It really couldn't get worse. But I'm so thankful the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. In other words, the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was like a grenade going off. It shattered the ethnic boundaries of God's saving activity. Be being near to God no longer depends on being part of a particular ethnic group. Nor is it about whether you're a good person or, or a bad person. Being, being near to God, enjoying the gift of relationship with him, both in this life and in the world to come. You know what that depends entirely upon right now? It depends entirely upon whether or not you are in Christ. That's what it's about. The, the old categories of of Jew and Gentile, they've been superseded by an entirely new distinction, a new entity. Enjoying God's favor and blessing is no longer about your relationship or your connection to the ethnic people of Israel. It's about your relationship and your connection to Jesus. And to be in Christ lest you just let that float away as a religious idea, it's very specifically to be united to Jesus through faith in Jesus. When I say in Christ, that's what I'm talking about. You're united to Jesus through faith in Jesus, and not just with faith that says, yeah, I think he was a real guy. I think he was cool. I love to wear jewelry that reminds me of all that. No, a faith that trusts Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And a faith that responds and expresses that trust by obeying Jesus in every area of life. It's the obedience of faith. That's what it means to be in Christ. You want to know if you're in Christ? Look for the obedience of faith. You want to know if you're not in Christ? You won't see the obedience of faith. Those who are far off are brought near in Christ. That's what Paul says has happened to the Ephesians. So, big question, connection number two how did that go down? I mean, verse, th verse 13 is like a topic sentence, and you can just feel Paul announcing that and saying, oh my goodness, we've got to understand, how did that happen? Well, that's where verses 14 to 18 help us. Here's the second connection between personal work of Christ and the community of the church. Connection number two, to be reconciled to God is to be united with his people. Verses 14 to 18. Look at, verse, look at verse 14. 
This next section, 14 to 18, is, is probably one of the most theologically dense paragraphs in the entire book of Ephesians. So read carefully and think carefully, okay? Look at verse 14. I'm so thankful when Paul does this, super long sentences, he, he, sometimes he gives this, like he does in verse 14, a summary of the whole. Look at the very beginning of verse 14. What's the summary? For he himself is our peace. Christ Jesus is our peace. Not Christ Jesus brings peace in a Jesus backpack. <laughs> Not Christ Jesus builds peace with Jesus supplies. He is our peace. He's our peace. Why? Because he has made us both one. Now, in context, lest we start filling in us both with whoever we feel like being united with, who is that a reference to in context? Jews and Gentiles, right? So, so making Jews and Gentiles one is another way of saying that Jesus united Jews and Gentiles. He took two separate groups and he reconstituted them into one new group. Well, how did he do that? Look at verse 15. He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a mouthful. And can we just pause at this point and say, and I was saying this this week as I was studying this passage, I think it's easy to look at this, this first century animosity between Jews and Gentiles and just at some point conclude, I mean, guys, really? Can you all just get along? <laughs> Can you just stop being so divisive and, and love each other? Well, no question, a lot of the animosity and hostility was due to the pride and resentment in their hearts, okay? We trouble our trouble. But friend, the root of the issue, the, the foundation of this wall of hostility wasn't the product of the sin of man. It was the product of the sovereign will of God. Why? Because it was the law of God established under the Mosaic Covenant that ultimately separated the Jews from the Gentiles, right? So they compounded that with their sin of pride and resentment, but that wasn't the starting point. It was the law of God that separated them. So from, from not eating certain foods, to keeping the Sabbath, the commands of the law were designed by God to set apart his people from all the rest of the people. It, it was a lesson in holiness. So what did Jesus do? He abolished or nullified the Mosaic law by fulfilling the Mosaic law. Matthew 5 verse 17, what's Jesus say? Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And at this point, if you have stayed awake this morning, you should be thinking in your mind, it sure sounds like Jesus is contradicting Paul. Right? What's Paul say? He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What does Jesus say? I didn't come to do that. Let's think about it. Think about it. Jesus isn't contradicting Paul, okay? 
Nor is Paul contradicting Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is reminding us in Matthew 5 that he didn't just show up and do away with the law by executive fiat. Be gone. (laughs) Bye-bye. Love has arrived. No, no. Through his perfect life of obedience, what did Jesus do? He kept, he honored, and ultimately fulfilled all the commandments of the law on our behalf, right? That's what Jesus did. He abolished it by nullifying it, not by just kicking it to the curb. He abolished it by fulfilling it, not by just saying it doesn't matter anymore. And so the Mosaic law is still exceedingly beneficial. Hear that, friend. It's exceedingly beneficial. We need the Old Testament because it instructs us in the character and will of God. But the law is no longer our master in a covenantal sense. Or as Doug Moo so well says, the law is not a a direct and immediate guide to the new covenant believer. Why not? Because we have to understand and apply the entire Mosaic law in light of the person and work of Christ. If you want to learn more about that, I'm happy to recommend a book later. Because there's a lot to think through there. So, why did Jesus do all that? Why did did he abolish the law and this wall of separation that it preserved between Jew and Gentile? Well, he had two goals in view. Look at verse 15. Two goals, okay? That he might, what's the first goal? Verse 15, verse 15, create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So track with Paul. What did the law do? The law preserved two different groups. It invited one to draw near and said to the other, stay away. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus took both of those two groups and he did away with the separation and hostility between them by uniting both of them to himself and in himself forming an entirely new race. An entirely new humanity defined not by obedience to the law, but by union with Christ. So listen, if you're in Christ, you have more in common right now with a brother or sister who doesn't look like you, talk like you, sound like you, dress like you, or speak like you than someone who does all of those things. Why? Because you've both been united to Christ, right? That's the most important thing about you. And if you're united to Christ, then guess who else you're united to, friend? Everybody else who's united to Christ. Uniting people to one another, creating peace between men where there was no peace, is one of Jesus' primary goals in abolishing the law. There's a second goal. Look at verse 16. And I would argue this second goal is a goal that if it is not also realized, the first goal could never be accomplished. What is the second goal? Verse 16, Jesus abolished the law that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Translation, (laughs) reconciliation in Christ works in two directions. Peace in Christ flows out in two directions. First, reconciliation and peace with God. Second, reconciliation and peace with God's people. You are reconciled to God 
And through that work of reconciliation, we are united to God's people. How does God do that? He does it through his work on the cross. Look back at verse 13. None of Paul's words are wasted. What did he say back in verse 13? We are Gentiles brought near by the blood of Christ. What does Jesus' blood do, friend? What's it do? It satisfies the justice of God on your behalf. It placates the wrath of God. It it pays the penalty that we owe for our rebellion, death, so that we can receive the free gift of eternal life. Apart from the cross, there is no reconciliation with God. There is no peace with God. There's no intimacy with God or relationship with God because it's only through the cross, through the shed blood of Christ, that God has made a way for us to be made right with him. Look at verse 16. Notice here the not-so-subtle implication that both Jews and Gentiles need to be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? And reconcile both of them to God. In other words, the Jews had the law but they couldn't keep the law. They were sinners like us, which which is why we all need Jesus, right? It's only through what Jesus has done on our behalf that we can know the the joy of being reconciled at peace with God. So, So where does all this reconciling work go down? Where is it happening? Well, it happens in the community of the church, this, this one body, look back at verse 16. This one body in which we are reconciled is the body of the church. How do we know that? Ephesians 1.23, speaking of Christ, and he put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So this reconciliation to God happens in the church. This reconciliation to one another happens in the church. To be reconciled to God in Christ is to be united with his people in Christ. You can't have the one without the other. You can't be reconciled to the head without being united to the body. You can't be on good terms with God if you're not on good terms with his people. That's what Paul's saying. We don't tend to think that way, do we? How do we tend to think? Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus. We ask questions like, do you have a personal relationship with God? I'm not dissing the question. <laughs> I am simply pointing out that our tendency is to treat our entire spiritual life the way we want Facebook to treat our data. Private. personal. And sadly, even in the church, I think it's easy to live a a self-focused and self-centered life where you might show up on Sunday morning like this, but you really do keep to yourself the rest of the week. You show up on Sunday, you take care of the kids, You pay your bills, and you hit repeat. And when we do that, friends, when when, when the pattern of our life reflects something less than a 
that a wholehearted week in and week out pursuit of relationship with other Christians, what are we doing? We're functionally denying the work that Christ has done in uniting us to one another when he reconciled us to God. That's what we're doing. To be reconciled to God is to be united to his people. You can't have one without the other. And both of those points, that those who are far off are brought near in Christ and to be reconciled to God is to be united to his people, sets us up for a final practical implication. And here we look at verses 19 to 22, which I'd summarize this way. The community of the church is our identity in Christ. Community of the church. Remember we were thinking about, okay, what is it that sets the community of the church apart from all these other REI? We got belonging, come over here. What what makes the church different? Well, here's the core of it, okay? The community of the church is our identity in Christ. So I have a question for you. Just think about this in your mind, okay? If I ask you, Christian, why should you pursue community? Why? What would you say? If I cornered you over coffee, why should you pursue community? Well, when I ask people that question, when I ask, you know, why do anything more than attend a meeting on Sunday? Why why pursue this lifestyle of relationship with other Christians throughout the week? Oh my goodness. Where other people know the real you and you know them really. I mean, to narrow it to our context as a local church, why should you be part of a community group? Why should you share life with a small group of eight to ten adults who are on a mission to help each other follow Jesus? Okay? Whenever I ask questions like this, most people say something like the following. We should pursue community because we all have needs. We all have issues. We all need help. We all need support. We've got challenges and we need each other to care for each other and get through them. Is that true? Some of you don't want me to smack you after you nod your head. I'm not. It is true, okay? Do you need help from other people? Goodness gracious, is that true? Yes, absolutely. Of course that's true. We need to give help. We need to receive help. But you realize, I hope, that there's absolutely nothing distinctly Christian about that answer. Think about that. Would a Muslim believe that we need to receive help and give help? Yeah. There's nothing Christian about that answer. Few other religious groups would disagree. Plenty of atheists would agree with that statement. And then, of course, there's the inconvenient little fact that if your whole rationale for participating in Christian community is centered on getting help with your challenges or helping other people with their challenges, what are you going to do when everything seems stable? No major issues. No difficult decisions, no felt need for community. Maybe I'll just stay home tonight. I'm tired. 
Well, enter Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Because in these verses, Paul, he takes the two main points we just considered and he presses home a conclusion that completely redefines our motivation for pursuing community as Christians. Look at verse 19. You ready for this? So then, here's the punchline, in light of Christ reconciling us to God and one another, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice Paul does not say, hey, Ephesians, in light of everything God has done for you, the least you all could do is show up on Sunday morning, by the way, try to do it on time, and consistently attend a community group during the week. I mean, really? Is that too much to ask? He died for you. Come on. Paul is so wise. He doesn't speak first to our activity. What does he speak first to? To our identity. Our sense of self. Who we understand ourselves to be. He, he, there are implications for our activity. But he doesn't start with our activity. He starts with our identity. Because if you are in Christ, friend, then a fundamental change has taken place. Not just in where you're going to spend eternity. In Christ, uh, you're going right to heaven. Great, congratulations, enjoy that. No, a fundamental change. That's true. But a fundamental change has taken place in your identity right now. This week in the car, when you were driving to work and thinking, who Maybe I'm the only guy that does that, but I've talked enough of you to know that, that we wrestle with this sense of identity, right? Who am I? How does Paul answer that? Who are you for the Ephesians? What's he say? You are, identity language, fellow citizens and members of the household of God. That's your identity. Once you were not a part of God's people, now you are part of God's people, and that is a complete reversal of everything that was true about their past in verses 11 and 12, Right? A change has taken place, and the change isn't personal. It's corporate. If you're in Christ, you're part of a new body, a new society. He just starts mixing metaphors, right? A new family, a new building where where Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, a new temple. It's like he can't stop. The point isn't, and nothing else. It's like he could keep going. But what's true of all those images? Not one of them can be reduced to me and Jesus. They're corporate, every single one of them. They're not individual. What does that tell us? It tells us this, friend. It tells us that the community of the church isn't the product of our problems and our weaknesses. It's not here because we all have issues. The community of the church is our identity in Jesus Christ. That's what it tells us. It's who we are. Community is not an event you attend. It is your identity in Christ, friend. And to the degree that we, we think like it's just an event we attend or we live like it's just an event we attend, we're, we're living in denial of our identity. We're pretending to be someone that doesn't actually exist. We're, we're acting like solo Christianity is fine when in fact solo Christianity doesn't exist. It's not a biblical category. 
because, because Jesus didn't shed his blood on the cross to purchase solo Christianity. He shed his blood on the cross to make you part of what? Who are we? Fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. It's corporate. And unless the Ephesians or those of you listening to me right now kind of chalk up that identity to some sort of nebulous, well, we're all part of the universal church, everybody's in Jesus, that's a cool concept. Look at verse 22, because Paul gets personal with them. What's he say? Oh, and by the way, Ephesians, in him you also... Ephesians, in your local context, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when God unites us to himself in Christ, he also unites us to a local expression of his body, the church. That's why church membership is so important. By by affirming and, and overseeing our mutual profession of faith, we're embracing our identity in Christ. Because everyone who's united to Christ is united to a local expression of his body. Because it's our identity. So hear this. Living in community is the intended result of an obedient response to the gospel. It's what Jesus is after. Now let me uh, step on some toes. You ready for this? When life is busy, our identity in Christ doesn't change. When life is peaceful, your identity in Christ doesn't change. When you feel your need for other people desperately, your identity in Christ doesn't change. When you feel like being alone, your identity in Christ doesn't change. If someone says something in your small group that offends you, your identity in Christ doesn't change. If the leader seems a little awkward, and it's just kind of uncomfortable to be there sometimes, your identity in Christ hasn't changed. (laughs) If you tend to be an introvert, your identity in Christ hasn't changed. If you've been hurt in the past when you opened up to other Christians and did that whole vulnerable community thing that pastors are always talking about, I got burned. Okay, I'm done. Has your identity in Christ changed? Have you stopped being in Christ just because you got hurt? Friends, we must not be consumers looking for a church to give us a low-cost, low-stress sense of belonging. We need to be what God has made us to be in Christ, members of the household of God who live out our corporate identity through thick and thin. So, if you believe that, how do we know how we're doing? How do we know how we're doing? How do we know if we're embracing or denying our identity in Christ? Let me give you a simple question to ask this week, okay? Consider this. Consider this. Is there at least one person in this congregation? One person, ideally someone in your community group, but it doesn't have to be, who knows the real you? and with whom you are consistently sharing all the joys and sorrows of real life in Christ. Don't wait to be asked. Don't wait for someone else to drag your identity out of you, as it were, okay? Embrace it. Pursue it. Live it out. Be vulnerable. 
And if the answer to that question is no, or someone used to, but not anymore, then friend, you need to humble yourself and acknowledge to the Lord that right now, for better or worse, more for worse, you're denying the very life Jesus died to give you. You're saying through what is not present in your calendar or your pursuit of other people or friendships with other Christians, thanks for shedding your blood for that. Not interested. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Such a big deal that the strength of our pursuit of community as a church, I would argue, is one of the surest long-term indicators that we actually understand the gospel as a church. And let me say, given we just celebrated 30 years, we have been seriously blessed, have we not, in hearing for decades Jesus Christ preach from this pulpit. Haven't we been blessed in that? God's been so kind. But let's not assume that just because we're hearing the gospel that we're living out the entailments of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, our, our identity in Christ because of the gospel. So be honest. Where, where do you need to grow in your pursuit of community? Do you need to prioritize our Sunday gatherings? Do you, do you need to join a community group? Maybe you need to actively participate in the life and relationships of the folks in that group instead of just kind of showing up, checkbox, leaving. That's not community, that's attendance. Maybe you need to spend more time talking and praying and getting to know another brother or sister outside a formal community group meeting where, you know, you initiate that and don't wait for a community group leader to kind of spoon feed you. (laughs) Whatever that next step is, friend, remember this, okay? And take heart in this. Community isn't an event. It's our identity in Christ. It needs to be who we are before it's what we do. And it will only be what we consistently do if we recognize and don't forget that it's who we are. That's the point. And I'm grateful in saying this, though I am directly challenging us as a church, that though pursuing community is hard work and it's really messy, it's not something we ultimately create for ourselves. It's not, okay? That's really good news. We're we're not trying to run around and have a whole bunch of conversations and send a whole bunch of text messages and and make a whole bunch of meals and host a whole bunch of events until we kind of like, I think I've arrived at community. (laughs) No. I have no interest in leading a church like that. I have no interest in you looking at me as a pastor and expecting me to somehow through enough events create community for you. What did we say at the beginning? What what does this whole passage remind us of? We can't create community. Jesus Christ creates community. And he calls us to live it out and become in our life what he's already made us to be in here. Those who are far off are brought near in Christ. When God reconciles us to himself, he unites us to his people. Jesus does that, friends. Jesus always does that. And that gives us hope that as we are learning how to pursue community in more and more faithful ways, we are simply becoming and living out and realizing what Jesus creates, not just in our hearts, but in this church. Verse 22 is such good news. It is the Spirit of God who is building us together, Kingsway. It's the Spirit of God. 
not, not your pastor primarily, not your community group leader, the Spirit of God. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you don't just give us a list of Christian activities, but through your cross work, you actually change the answer to the who am I question. So we were singing earlier, Lord, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. Lord, we want to be a people who agree with your word and say, Jesus, we believe that we are who you say we are. Father, I pray where we have treated the community of the church as an accessory in the Christian life, something that we go to when we're in trouble um, keep in our back pocket but it's not a lifestyle it certainly doesn't look like it's our identity Father we pray you would forgive us forgive us for our pride we sang that earlier too and help us Lord Jesus to live in a way that is consistent with who you have made us to be I thank you Lord that in every season of life, your spirit gives us wisdom to know how to do that. We don't have to ultimately look to each other or follow somebody else's example or just imitate another person. Lord, we, we look to you. We look to your spirit. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us as a church to see community as who we are far before what we do. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, in a few minutes, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to do that for this very reason. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the reconciliation in both directions that we just heard about in God's word. Through the blood of Christ, we're reconciled to God. Through the blood of Christ, we're reconciled to one another. And I hope you realize in me even saying that, that unless you have been reconciled to God in Christ and reconciled to one another in Christ, you can't share this meal with any integrity. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, and if you don't know that you are right with God because you're right with his people, those things are connected. Please don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. God warns you, this meal is just for Christians, just for those who are in Christ. And if you're in Christ, receive it with glad and thankful hearts today, knowing that it's through his broken body and shed blood that we have a new identity called community. Ushers, if you come forward, let's stand and sing.